I want to make sure you can hear me. Can you hear me? Our second reading today comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 18, and ending at chapter 9, verse 1. For those of you following along in your bulletin, note that the change is the fault of a last-minute decision on the preacher, uh, and plays, uh, is, says nothing about the diligence of our bulletin editor. <laughs> Let us hear God's word for us today. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not safe. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why, then, has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water, then my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the earliest days of the pandemic, when each day stretched out before us with as much uncertainty as the one before, our family decided it was time to dig into the Star Wars universe. Distraction felt important at that time. When engaging with the problems of a completely fictional universe seemed much preferable to wallowing in the overwhelm of the actual one. One night in the midst of this, we were towards the end of episode four, Return of the Jedi, or is that the true episode three? I'll leave that there for another time. Regardless, we had come to a pivotal scene between Luke and Darth Vader on the Death Star. While the movie premiered in 1983, and there's not much left to spoil, I do know that there are still those who come newly to it, so I won't give away too much. In the scene, though, after many many minutes of heightened intensity with lightsabers and force lightning. Yes, that is a thing. Luke, a Jedi, the good guy, comes face to face with Anakin from the dark side, otherwise known as his mortal enemy, Darth Vader. At the height of it, Anakin reveals himself to be capable of remorse and even possibly of love. It is shocking. It is a scene of reconciliation and release that we weren't quite expecting. It is what Luke had gone to battle for, what he had hoped for even when all else told him it couldn't be so. It really is a cinematic catharsis moment, and from the couch cushions in the dark, a sob let loose 
Ella, our youngest, seeing this for the very first time was overcome by the rawness that the writers were trying to convey. All of the layers of hurt and betrayal of love and hope and loss. Ella is good at that. It's one of her many superpowers in regular life, too. She is not one to look away when she realizes someone is hurting. It's something she's doing a good job of teaching those of us around her. Because it's a difficult thing to see the pain of others. It's harder still to sit in the midst of it, unsure of what might break open within us. One of the greatest and most humbling gifts of being your pastor is the privilege that you invite and the trust that we are extended to sit with people, bearing witness to your pain as it unfolds. The death of loved ones, the trauma of injury, the breakdown of relationships, struggle through diagnosis and treatment, the unmooring of mental illness, the uncertainty of job loss, the heartbreak of miscarriage and infertility, the long and winding paths of deteriorating bodies and minds. Now we do receive some training on how to sit best with this, but I learn most often from you how different we all make it. Some with questions, others with anger. There's weeping and there's laughing, stoicism and regret. Sometimes we are alone and desperately do not want to be, and sometimes we are surrounded and searching for spaces of quiet. All of us have a desire for it to be over quickly. And some of us understand that it will take longer and look differently than we thought. These are some of the most vulnerable and sacred moments in our relationships to one another, whether it is a pastor or a parent or a partner or a sibling or a friend or a child or a caretaker. In grief, we have choices. When the one who is hurting chooses to chooses to allow another person to see them, or not. When the one who is with them chooses to see, or not. It is a challenge because as members of this human family, we know that we are innately attuned to one another, and so often our choice in those moments comes from how and from whom we have been taught to experience From our earliest ages, this begins. Studies with infants as young as six months old tell us how attuned they are to their closest caregivers, responding quickly to the connective invitation of smiles and happy voices. In the absence of these, when as part of the study caregivers are told not to smile, to turn away even, infants grow noticeably upset and agitated. Over time, with extended periods of this, they will tune in elsewhere, looking to others around them 
the simulation that's as we grow, we continue to learn from parents and family and peers, picking up cues from cultural expectations and gender norms. We learn what it feels like to be left out, to be included, to trust, to be betrayed. We learn to release our feelings or push them down, to transform them or to react in anger, to shut it all out or to be completely overcome. And we learn also how and when to take in the emotion of others, when to see and when to look away, whom to see and whom to look away from, because before too long, the world is wide enough for us to know that it contains more than just our own joy and our own disaster. Collective grief and injustice confronts us in waves that can feel constant, inconsiderate of anything in our own personal lives. When black smoke filled the air for days in downtown Manhattan and in a field outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the cries of school children rang out in South Texas after yet another shooting, when black bodies lay lifeless after yet another arrest gone wrong, when war makes refugees out of millions again and again and again, when families beckon pontoon boats from rooftops as waters rise all around them, when desperate people become pawns for political gain, when candles that are lit for the dead stretch for miles, and our entire world is turned upside down by a virus that will not let us go. There is just so much that to wholeheartedly feel it all is too much. We might be overcome, we worry. And so we're, when we are afforded the privilege, we learn how to hold it at bay, to remain aloof. Sometimes we grow numb. Folk artist Ani DeFranco captures it well in this lyric. The first time I saw someone lying on the cold street, I thought, I just can't walk past here. This just can't be true. But I learned by example to keep moving my feet. It's amazing the things that we all learn to do. Whether as a protective action in personal pain or willfully ignorant strategy of communal life, this numbing eats away at us, one way or another, at our relationships and at our faith. It tells us untruths about our self-worth and that of others. It relieves us of any urgency to act, any belief that if we do so, it would matter. Old Testament scholar Kathleen O'Connor observes that whether disaster afflicts an entire an individual or an entire community, the numbing that begins as a protective response can quickly become a dehumanized, passionless condition. O'Connor studies and writes about the community of Judah and the prophet Jeremiah, whom God called up from in the life of the people living then through the disaster of occupation and forced removal from their homeland, 
the opportunity for dispassion and dehumanizing action were right. How easy it would be to turn the pain of, viol of the pain received into violence against others, inflicting the same as what we feel, so that we do not feel so alone in the midst of it. Their cries and their questions went to the heart of their faith and their God, the very questions we ask when we are at our lowest, facing disaster we'd rather not. Is the Lord not in Zion? Where is God? Is her king not in her? Does God not see? The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and still we are not saved. Why does God not see? Why is this happening? Does God even care? In the midst of this chaos stood the prophet Jeremiah, called to the most basic task that a prophet is called to, to see, to speak truth about what he sees, and to remind them, God is with them. Jeremiah is most well known as the weeping prophet, because for most of this book, his seeing leaves him and bereft. And still he does not turn away. Nor does God. Which stands out most noticeably here this morning. The ambiguity of the speaker of this text perhaps is on purpose as we wonder whether this is the prophet speaking on behalf of God or God speaking for himself. Is this the weeping prophet or a weeping God? Personally, from everything else scripture tells us, I am convinced it is the latter. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. God sits down right in the midst of it and is broken. By the grief. Our God, betrayed by those they loved most, yet who remains and holds with them the pain they bear in spades now. Here, God's vulnerability is on full display. And whether on their own or through the voice of Jeremiah, God wishes the people to see this, to choose not to turn away, explain away. It is a teachable moment for God and God's people. The pain and vulnerability of God before the people shows them that their own experience is true. The grief they have is real, and they do not suffer it alone. It will not break them in the end. In fact, God believes it can transform them. In this situation, grieving is a moral act, O'Connor goes on. It involves living in the present with the knowledge of the self and of the world as they are. It engages present reality. 
the only place from which the communal rebuilding can begin. When mourning occurs, life in communion with other people can become possible again. Grief is a coping the gift of a God who is willing to not be only be with us in pain, but to experience it within God's self is marvelous. It is an act of faith. God's faith in us. God's love for us. It is the gift of a God willing to let her heart be broken by our desires to look away. It is a gift of a God willing to call us to account for our willful act of injustice towards one another and to show the pain. It is a gift of a God willing to become one among us so that we know that grief is not the In fact, grief, long and raw and painful as it is, can be time, care, and patience, and honesty, a way towards healing, towards justice that rolls down, and individuals and families and communities that find light on the other side of it. Our whole lives, we are learning how to be in relationship, and because of that, when we allow it, we are always vulnerable to the pain that is inevitable when we trust someone or something outside of ourselves. But this is also where the joy lies, we know. And God teaches us that too. Grief and love intermingle so that it is nearly impossible to disentangle. May our God, who is willing to weep for us, with us, give us the courage to love one another well enough to do the same with one another, finding a way together through the pain and into life.